0: This is Dr. Deanna Minapachi with Team Headmere, and thanks for listening to ENT in a Nutshell. If you'd like to stay up to date on our latest content, please follow us at headmere underscore com on Instagram and Twitter. Now on to the next episode. Hey everyone, welcome back for another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is John Marinelli and Today, we're joined by Dr. Tucker Woodson, um, who's dual certified in otolaryngology as well as sleep medicine to talk a little bit about palate surgery. Uh, Dr. Woodson, thanks for taking the time to be here today.
1: My pleasure. Great to be here.
0: Um, So I think this can be a a tough topic in the sense that the, the terminology can be a little bit confusing if you try to read the literature on it, but palate surgery, of course, has been one of the defining procedures for ENT involvement in sleep medicine, and so um, maybe we could just start by overarching perspective here. What are we talking about when we say palate surgery in the context of OSA?
1: Well, palate surgery started uh, many years ago. I think a historical perspective is maybe beneficial. Uh, so early on, uh, back in the late 70s, when there really was only tracheotomy as a treatment, uh, people started developing different procedures to actually modify the soft palate. It was recognized that there was significant redundant uh, or excessive tissue there, sometimes in large tonsils. And then if you modified those, you could see an, an improvement uh, in the airway. Uh, and so that was the initial Fujita pharyngoplasty. Uh, so not long after it was developed, people started modifying uh, those procedures. Initially it was really developed, still at that time, at modifying uh, and removing uh, some of the uh, extra soft tissue that was present. So they're really kind of mucosally oriented procedures. Uh, but, as time has gone on we 've kind of realized, like with other reconstructive procedures, that just modifying the mucosa or removing the redundant tissue doesn't really improve the airway like we'd uh need to to actually improve sleep apnea, so the procedures have evolved over time to be more reconstructive and unfortunately as as these procedures have developed, each author has kind of renamed uh, a series of procedures uh with different names, uh, but in essence, they all have a lot of similarities as you look at it. So if you look at the lateral pharyngoplasty described by Kahali, uh, my expansion sphincterplasty, uh, you look in Taiwan, uh, they have a, a relocation pharyngoplasty. Uh, in Australia, there's the Australian modified UPBP And really, in a lot of ways, they're more similar than different. Uh, they work at uh, modifying some of the underlying structures of the palate and the pharyngeal airway to just open it up and to improve airflow.
0: Awesome. Well, we can get into that a little bit more here in a little bit. But before that, I wanted to ask you, when you think about the type of patients that are presenting to your clinic, what do they look like um, in terms of the ones that you think might be able to benefit from palate surgery?
1: Well, there's really a lot of heterogeneity, really, for it, a lot of variability in the patient. So you can see the snoring patient that's coming in with minimal sleep apnea to obviously the patient with profoundly severe apnea, It's, you know, failed multiple device, uh, CPAP and oral device kind of therapy. So, really, there's a huge amount of variability, and there's no single typical, uh, you know, patient that presents for palate surgery. I think it's important to realize that the soft palate is really the primary side of obstruction in sleep apnea. When you look at the pathophysiology of how the airway collapses during sleep, basically, it's the combination of a vulnerable upper airway structure, which is both airway size and airway compliance or collapsibility uh, combined with the loss of muscle tone associated with sleep. And when you look at this part of the airway that's the most vulnerable, well, it's the retropalatal segment. That's the smallest segment, and it's also the most compliant. So with any loss of muscle tone, it's the area that's going to collapse. So in about 80% of patients, the palate is the primary site of airway obstruction and narrowing. Now, there can be secondary sites, and in about maybe 20% of patients, there's primary obstruction more at the tongue base or epiglottis. But in most patients, the palate is a significant part of the abnormality. And that, and that abnormality can really vary. So the anatomy that contributes isn't the same in all patients. There's a subset of patients that has, for example, large tonsils. And that's what we see a lot in, in children. They tend to have a very stable pharyngeal airway overall, but they have these big tonsils or big adenoids protruding into the airway. And so when you eliminate that, you actually eliminate a lot of the airflow limitation. And that group of patients has, in a sense, less compliance problems, less collapsibility problems. But unfortunately, as we get older, a couple of things happen. The airway lengthens and it gets a lot more compliant. So you have a lot more floppiness to the airway. So it's not just a matter of eliminating or reducing, you know, the, something that's physically blocking off the airway where you're changing, let's say, the cross-sectional airway size, but you also have to change the airway stiffness. And that's a lot more complicated problem. It's a little more difficult to achieve, and that's why the success rates of, of palatal pharyngoplasty are significantly lower than that of tonsillectomy, I think, as a general rule goes by. So to answer your question, is that there really isn't you know, uh, an ideal palate patient. It's It's kind of the patient that's presenting to your office or to your clinic that's failing other device treatments. Uh, If there are patients that present that have enlarged tonsils and other all favorable findings, those are uh, certainly uh, favorable primary patients to treat with uh, palatal surgery. Uh, But in general, that's kind of the rare group, especially in the adults population that we see in my practice.
0: Okay. I think that lays a really good foundation for beginning to understand why palate surgery might work. One question before we get more into this, how the this surgery mechanistically addresses patient sleep apneas, you mentioned that the most common area of collapse for adult patients is at the level of the soft palate. Um, that almost seems to suggest that a lot of these Patients are obligate nose breathers at night. In, a, in other words, even though we know nasal surgery doesn't lower patients' AHI, and granted that, of course, doesn't address the velopharynx, but are these patients just not able to breathe through their mouth at night, or how how come that can be a primary driver?
1: Absolutely. So that actually really hits on a on a key portion. You know, mammals and humans during sleep, ideally, they, we just breathe through the, the nose. The nasal and pharyngeal airway is the primary route of respiration, and actually. I refer to my patients and when I talk to the other fellows and residents is really mouth breathing during sleep is really what I call the drowning escape route. If you have abnormal airway resistance, your body will default to breathing through the mouth, but it's certainly not the primary route of, of respiration during sleep. And, and unfortunately, in apnea patients, because they have such a small jaw, they have a large tongue, a relatively long and redundant soft palate, when you actually measure it Oral airway resistance during sleep is significantly higher than actually nasal and nasal pharyngeal resistance. So, for the apnea patient, actually breathing through the mouth is more difficult than it is breathing through the nose, even though the nose and the retropalatal segment is, is obstructed. And even more so, as the mouth opens, the tongue tends to fall downwards and posteriorly, which actually even worsens. Uh, airway resistance and airway blockage. So in a sense, mouth breathing is the drowning escape route when somebody has an arousal, when muscles are activated in a wake state, but actually unfortunately during sleep, oral respiration really is destabilizing. That's kind of interesting thinking, especially how hypoglossal nerve stimulation works. Well, that's one of the reasons that with hypoglossal nerve stimulation, you know, mouth breathing is kind of one of the enemies of hypoglossal nerve stimulation for a couple different reasons. One is when the mouth opens, Uh, the genioglossus muscle insertion tends to fall backwards and downwards as well. But also when the mouth opens, you lose all the compliance and all the tension in the lateral pharyngeal walls. When you think about it, when the mouth is closed, the side walls of the throat, the palatopharyngeal muscle is much tenser. And when the mouth opens, those lateral pharyngeal walls really get to be much more compliant. Thinking then about
0: this excessive collapsibility here of the lateral walls and in the velopharynx, what is happening in palate surgery? Um, if you if we just take you know the common procedure like expansion sphincter platypharyngoplasty, what is happening to address that collapsibility?
1: You know historically UPVP was based on on basically just removing blockage and increasing oropharyngeal size. Basically, the, the goal was, you know, you cut out the uvula, you remove the tonsils. The idea was that you could take the posterior pillar and suture to the anterior pillar, and that would kind of tighten the pharyngeal walls. Uh, there was very little in the way of relocating any sort of muscles or any underlying structures. It was just kind of removed what was there and what you were left with was hopefully uh, beneficial. In fact, if you wanted to make the airway more open, you needed to shorten the palate more aggressively. In fact, historically, that's how we were taught. We were said, you know, how much do you shorten the palate? And the more you shorten the palate, the more enlarged the airway would be. Unfortunately, the more you shorten the palate, the more incidents of velopharyngeal insufficiency and other complications would arise. And that was obviously a a very negative, uh, you know, uh, outcome to have so that as we then developed other more reconstructive procedures, the idea was to what muscles could we, could we relocate? What were the ones that were the most important? Uh, so Michelle Kahali actually in, in Brazil started working more on the superior constrictor muscle and the in, and kind of the superior middle constrictor and trying to placate those muscles to kind of tighten the airway. And that was kind of more the basis of the, of the lateral pharyngoplasty now, in the process. He was also relocating the palatal fringes. whereas when I looked at his work and we started analyzing what he was doing, we started relocating the palatal muscle, which historically, you know, in doing in pharyngeal surgery from tonsillectomy onwards, I mean, it was kind of your goal was to not violate these muscles at all. So it was really kind of a big step going forward is to say, we're gonna go and intentionally kind of violate this muscle structure and try to move it and uh, and, and make the airway larger. So the initial thought in our, our concept was what could we actually move this to that would actually you know, improve the airway stability. And we kind of keyed on the idea of using the hamulus or the, the pterygoid hamulus as the structure that actually could provide some real you know, stable support uh, uh, to pull the muscle up to and to kind of tighten it. It was a structure we felt was kind of laterally and superior to, to where we wanted to open the airway. And if we actually sutured to that, that that would be the most stabilizing point. And uh, initially, it, 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 you know, it showed some benefit, I think, over previous techniques, uh, but that was kind of the initial kind of stabilizing point. As time has gone on, that, that has, has changed. We've kind of learned over time that we can actually use other structures, particularly using the pterygo mandibular raffae as a pretty solid structure that will hold some sutures. We can actually take the palatal fingers muscle and pull it out laterally and use the raffe as a stabilizing uh, feature as well. And what is this concept of the alpha angle? So the alpha angles is kind of totally different. That's getting more into airway evaluation and phenotypes. And so as we uh, worked on developing this over time, we said, geez, our current way of describing the airway is really kind of inadequate. So when we first started evaluating the airway, we used the Fujita classification. And that was a simple classification that just basically divided the airway into two segments, a retropalatal segment or upper pharynx, and a lower pharynx or hypopharyngeal segment, or now we call oftentimes retroglossal. And it looked at those as being either open or closed. And there were three types of of obstruction. There's type type 1 that was upper pharyngeal. Uh, There's type 3 that was lower pharyngeal. And type 2 that was actually combined upper and lower pharyngeal. But basically, the problem is it really reduced all the complex anatomy of the palate into one point. And so you could have a patient, let's say, an extremes, that could have, let's say, large tonsils. And that would be upper pharyngeal obstruction with no other abnormality whatsoever. And that would be the same as someone that, let's say, presented with a long, draping, soft palate with hugely collapsible lateral walls, a massive uvula, and, you know, just a very, very clearly different anatomy. And so we had to come up with some way to actually try to describe this a little more uh, relevantly for the surgeon. Uh, a lot of the you know anatomy that we describe the palate and the airway with is really in some in many ways directed either at swallowing physiology or at cancer and we need really a way of looking at the airway as just that as a breathing conduit and what were the clinical features that were relevant so I developed an idea of of airway phenotypes and so there there's several critical features in the airway phenotypes but when you look at the soft palate it's not a uniform anatomic segment. And it basically has three anatomic parts to the, to the soft palate itself. There's a proximal apneurotic segment, there's a middle muscular segment, and there's a distal velar segment. So the proximal segment, the apneurotic segment, is basically just that. It's the palatal apneurosis. It's the tensor tendon. It goes basically from hamulus to hamulus, but it's the it's the tensor palatini muscle that inserts into the hamulus. And that's just a solid insertion, even though, you know, in some of the medical school textbooks, it's kind of treated as though it's a pulley. It's really not a pulley. That tendon really solidly inserts onto the hamulus. so There's really no movement of the tendon at that point. And then it solidly inserts and you have the aponeurosis really stretching uh, from side to side in the pharynx. And it's interesting that the proximal segment of the palate really has no muscle in it. It's just it's the aponeurosis and fibroadipose tissue and mucosa. And that's that proximal upper part of the palate. The middle or muscular segment incorporates probably more like 60% or more of the soft palate length. Uh, so the biggest part is the muscular segment. I think of it as really being defined really in large part by the levator muscle, although there's clearly other muscles that are part of this, uh, particularly, I mean, the the palatopharyngeus is really probably the other major muscle in this segment. But the muscular segment traditionally is kind of the the segment that involves the levator uh, muscle. And then the, the distal segment or the velar segment is just kind of the, is in fact, the distal segment involves some of the posterior pillar uh, tissues, but really I kind of define it by kind of the, the velum, which is the uvular, the uvular muscle, and defining that kind of lower third uh, of, of the palate. Well, each of these junctions, if you look at it in a cross-sectional structure, has a, has a different contour. So the proximal segment of the palate, which is defined basically by the apneurosis and the upper muscular segment, has a very different orientation than the lower part of the palate, which has a very vertical orientation. So if you think about that, even when you do it, let's say, a nasal pharyngoscopy or scope, you know, you think about it, you kind of go past the, the hard palate and the nasal septum, and you have the palate that angles down away from you. Well, you, The proximal segment has quite a clearly different angulation than the distal segment. The distal segment runs parallel to the posterior pharyngeal wall, whereas the proximal segment runs a lot more parallel to the hard palate. And it's that angle of the the pal the soft palate as it runs either parallel to the soft palate or more vertical that's what I have described as the alpha angle, and that actually comes from the from the uh, uh speech therapy literature and they actually describe the alpha angle as a very dynamic change in in the angulation of the palate that occurs with swallowing so as the leviator muscle contracts, the alpha angle changes as the palate closes now, in the case in in the case in sleep and sleep apnea when the palate's relaxed and the patient's not swallowing the alpha angle is is more static and I, but that's the alpha angle's that angle from the hard palate to that initial segment of the soft palate in many ways I don't worry about trying to measure it to any specific degree but I try to assess to determine whether it's more vertical or more parallel to the posterior pharyngeal wall or is it more oblique or it's more uh parallel to the soft palate, because the oblique pattern is a much more open pattern. There's a much more space in the retropalatal segment in those patients in which the proximal level of the the soft palate runs parallel to the hard palate, whereas those patients that have basically a soft palate that drops off almost at a 90-degree angle from the hard palate, those are generally much narrower airways behind the soft palate
0: and I take it then they make for better surgical candidates then
1: Yeah the the oblique pattern because it's more open to begin with actually make the better surgical candidates because it's easier to make a partially open airway more open than trying to get one that's more narrow open uh, so it's actually the the oblique pattern in my experience is generally the more favorable for surgical procedures just because it's more open to start with This really
0: kind of leads into a physical exam. Anything else on the physical exam that you really pay attention to when seeing these patients in clinic?
1: Yeah, I look at a couple things. So first thing we look at is just the normal Friedman classification. I mean, that's still a fundamental piece of all the the surgeries that we do for our patients. So we look at uh, tonsil size and tongue position. And I think most of us are familiar with the Friedman classification, just briefly to go through it. So the tonsils, we use the Brodsky scale, basically one to four, uh, one being small tonsils that are basically within the, the confines of the tonsillar pillars. Uh, Two-plus tonsils are outside the confines of the tonsillar pillars, but less than 50% of the distance from the midline. Uh, Three-plus tonsils are greater than that 50% of the midline, but are still not touching uh, in the midline. And then the four-plus tonsils are those uh, patients where the, the tonsils are more or less touching in the midline. So I use the Brodsky scale combined with uh, the size of the tongue. Now I actually use the, what I, I refer to it usually as the modified melon potty, uh but some people refer to it as Friedman tongue position. But basically what one is looking for, and I try to keep it relatively simple, is I look at the position of the soft palate. Can you see the free margin, yes or no? So if I can see the free margin, uh, with just normal, having the patient just open their mouth casually several times. So, if I can easily see the free margin of the soft palate, that's going to be a uh, Friedman tongue position one or two. That's going to be a favorable tongue position. Whereas, if I don't see the tongue position, it's a Friedman three or four. Unfortunately, most of my patients that have significant sleep apnea are Friedman stage three and four. It's actually quite unusual in my practice that I see a Friedman one or two. I do occasionally, especially in the younger patients where tonsils are probably more of an issue, but then use the combination of the most favorable surgical patients of those patients that have big tonsils. because When you take out big tonsils, you make more space. And those people with uh, smaller tongues, so the people that actually have Friedman 1 or 2, which is actually, it's easy to see the soft palate because they have a smaller tongue. So those people that have large tonsils and small tongues tend to have the best. And we still see, you know, success rates, irrespective of basically the palate technique you use, is being a success rate in probably 70, 80% when you have patients that meet the Friedman uh, 1 classification. On the other hand, the unfavorable uh, classification, which are people with small tonsils, 1 or 2. And Friedman stages three and four, those people unfortunately still have a, a relatively poor success rate. Although it's it is better with some of the new reconstructive procedures, but historically UPVP that success rate was in the 10 to 20 percent success rate. I think probably with some of our better surgical palatal techniques, it's probably double that. But it's still not as high as we we'd like it to be. Uh, in that Friedman stage three position. So that's still number one of what I look at anatomically. Then the second thing I'll look at is on just the oral exam, you kind of want to get a, a sense for the dimensions of the pharynx. Uh, so when you're looking at pharynx, just think about doing an indirect uh, nasal pharyngoscopy exam. There are those patients that you look in there and the distance from the, from the soft palate to the post pharyngeal wall is large. And you can say, boy, I can take a laryngeal mirror, one of the biggest mirrors, and I could actually do my nasopharyngoscopy exam with that big, big mirror because there's so much space anterior-posterior. Then there's another group of patients that you look back there, and it looks like that the soft palate is almost fused. I mean, there's just very, very little space, if any space between the soft palate and the posterior pharyngeal wall. And for those people, right, you'd get the smallest nasal nasopharyngeal mirror, and you say, I still won't be able to see anything back there. It's just, it's too little anterior-posterior space. And that actually deals with some of the phenotypes of the pharynx, because when you look at the patients that have vertical phenotypes, they tend to have very, very narrow anterior-posterior distances of the pharynx. Whereas those patients that have oblique types, which is the more favorable, they have much deeper spaces. They have a very deep distance between the anterior and posterior uh, pharyngeal walls, between the palate and the posterior pharyngeal wall. So you get some idea of the palatal phenotype just on your regular physical exam. And uh, so that's kind of the first thing that I'll look at on routine physical exam. And then next then is when I go to my endoscopic exam, which is to do some degree of usually flexible fiber optic uh, laryngoscopy.
0: Are you referring to drug-induced sleep endoscopy or...
1: No, this is actually just a wake exam. Actually, I still think the wake exam for palatal surgery is probably still the most valid. Uh, I mean, there's more people doing sedated endoscopies, but clearly I think most of the information you get during a sedated endoscopy, I think you get during a wake endoscopy. And so with flexible uh, endoscopy uh, behind the palate, Probably the best way to examine the airways is with the patient in an upright and sitting position. You do get some idea of what happens more during sleep when somebody lies down. The problem is is that when people are supine, the airway collapses frequently so much, it's just hard to see much of anything. It's hard to assess the anatomy. So I think as long as you do it in a consistent basis, the sitting exam can actually be uh, pretty valuable when looking at the palatal airway. So when you go back there with the scope, the first thing is to probably, you know, take your time and be gentle. I think that's important. I actually routinely use a little topical anesthesia as well as lubrication. I think if you don't have the patient comfortable, it's just a hard exam to do. So you want, you know, take your time, be very gentle with the scope, get back there and, and get a nice centric view of the in the of the nasopharynx and the retropalatal segment. And then I do just what you kind of mentioned before. I want to assess the palatal segments. So although I mentioned before, the soft tissue anatomy of the muscles of the palate are actually in three segments. You have the aponeurotic muscular and velar segments. When the, when you combine those two together, you end up having two kind of segments of the pharyngeal airway. And that's the proximal segment and the distal segment. But And they're joined by what I've kind of renamed the genu. The genu or the knee is kind of in the middle. And so I kind of look for the knee point in the palate where the angulation changes. And at that segment, you can assess the proximal segment and then the distal segment. So when you assess the the retropalatal segment, you want to look at the two different segments above and below the geno. The the area proximal there, the oblique segment, you kind of look at that angulation and the distance of the hard palate to the posterior fringe wall. Get some idea that anterior-posterior distance. And that's usually gonna be consistent with your oral exam. So if you see in the oral exam that you have a very narrow anterior-posterior distance, you're likely gonna see the same thing uh, with the nasal scope. But you just wanna confirm it when you do that part of the exam. You then wanna assess the genu, and that's the dividing point between the the proximal oblique segment and the distal vertical segment. And you also wanna assess the distance of the genu to the posterior pharyngeal wall. And that's really critical Because those patients with a truly oblique palate, that distance is actually very favorable. There's actually quite a distance between the genu and the posterior pharyngeal wall. Whereas in both the patients with the vertical phenotype and the intermediate phenotypes, the genu can actually be in very close proximity anatomically to the posterior pharyngeal wall. And that's a little more difficult anatomy to, to treat. So in the intermediate patient, you want to actually assess the distance of the genu to the free margin of the soft palate. And actually, uh, Zhijing Yi, uh, Yi in, uh, in China has uh, done a, a significant amount of work, some great science, where she actually physically measured the distance uh, from, uh, of the collapsible segment behind the palate, which I think actually co- closely correlates to the genome. Uh, and she found that when the collapsible segment was more than 15 millimeters, the success rate of palatal pharyngoplasty really dropped a lot. So I actually look at in my patients at this distance from the genu to the free margin. And if I see that that distance from the genu to the free margin of the the, of the soft palate is in the range of 15 millimeters uh, uh, or less, that patient's going to be, uh, you know, pretty favorable for, for doing some soft tissue palate surgery probably. Whereas in those patients, if the distance is... Is more than uh, fifteen millimeters. So if it's a centimeter and a half or or more, you know, especially if you get up in the range of like two centimeters, it actually can be you know much more difficult to uh, to treat those really long soft palates. And uh, and so that's uh, kind of the initial things I'll look at. So I look also then at the size of the lateral walls. So I assess that the the anterior-posterior dimensions at both the hard palate, at the geno, and the velum. And then I assess also the size of the lateral walls uh, as well. And the lateral wall size can be assessed at both the the velopharynx, but also more proximally at the genome. Because in some patients, the lateral walls are prominent, but but in a very limited length. It actually doesn't involve a very long segment. It's very isolated. Whereas in other patients, you look at that and you see that the lateral walls are prominent almost from the eustachian tubes, you know, all the way down almost, you know, to the to the glottis, to the to the vocal folds. You have these big bulging lateral walls. And I find those patients are just literally extremely difficult to treat with isolated pharyngoplasty or actually any sort of even ENT procedures. I think a lot of those patients when they have those massive lateral walls, you know, a lot of those patients I'll send off to maxillofacial surgery if they're that prominent. So that's kind of my my brief outline of of looking at the airway. I do find it's also beneficial more and more Although historically, I've been uh, not a great advocate of the muter's maneuver, which is where you inspire against a a closed nostril and you then assess the collapse of the lateral walls. I do think it actually can be very valuable in assessing the compliance of the lateral walls when selecting patients for pharyngoplasty. And those patients that have hugely compliant lateral pharyngeal walls just don't do as well. Uh, So I do think the muter's maneuver is beneficial in helping to assess uh, the lateral wall compliance.
0: Are you getting any imaging preoperatively here?
1: Uh, generally not. Uh, historically, uh, people did get uh, lateral cephalometric x-rays. Uh, and the one measure that is valuable is the distance of the hyoid from the mandibular plane. And if it's it's greater than about 20 millimeters, uh, the percentage success rate for UPVP really drops off a lot. I think that that's because the longer airways, again, have more compliant lateral walls. And so it's just hard for an isolated palate procedure to stabilize that. But generally, I don't do a lot of imaging uh, for palate surgery alone. I wish it could be helpful. Uh, maybe in the future we will, but but right now, no.
0: And if we transition to talk a little bit more about the specifics of the procedures themselves, obviously, we've we've covered the Fujita UPPP that, you know, originally had tonsillectomy, re- removal of redundant um, lateral pharyngeal mucosa, and redundant palatal mucosa and partial removal of the uvula and then closing the pillars and how the concern with excess tissue excision led to that oropharyngeal stenosis. Could you touch on how some of these new techniques are avoiding the oropharyngeal stenosis that we see in those original descriptions of the procedure?
1: Yeah, sure. I think the, the a couple of different things is that the initial stenosis occurred for a couple of different reasons. There was kind of this thought that, you know, if you, again, cut out tissue, you know, you're making more space, but you're also then cutting out mucosa. And one of the questions I used to get historically was like, how much mucosa do you remove? And as time went on, more and more, my answer was, is I don't remove any mucosa, if at all possible. Because if I'm making the airway bigger, I actually need more mucosa to cover more surface area. And so I think if you avoid mucosal excision, you're going to lessen the degree of stenosis. I think the other thing is that the procedures become a lot more palatal techniques and, and less, in a sense, pharyngeal techniques. A lot of the stenosis happened because a lot of the surgery was directed at more of the oropharynx. So people would excise tonsils and they would then excise more and more of the posterior pillar trying to make more space. Well, then you're just making this kind of large pharyngeal open mucosal wound. And as we know, any wound, it's just gonna close by contraction and, and that would result frequently in, in stenosis. Whereas now, you know, you take out the tonsils, but you preserve the mucosa, you relocate the muscles, and uh, you use what available mucosa you have to, to close that. And there are different techniques and ways to avoid that. Um, and I, I don't think there's necessarily a right or wrong way. Uh, uh, I'm actually now incorporating in, in my practice uh, uh, some of the maneuvers that they use in the relocation pharyngoplasty. So I actually do a, a technique where we remove some of the ventral mucosa of the soft palate. And I remove the, the, the fat that actually sits underneath there, something we've named the kind of the lateral palatal fat. Uh, some people refer to that as the supratonsillar fat, although it's really not related to the tonsil. It's actually it's actually totally within the soft palate. Uh, we move that fatty tissue and then actually take the posterior mucosa of the soft palate and uh, uh, we make an incision right next to the uvula and then use that mucosa to actually close the lateral pharyngeal wall under no tension. And that actually was just recently uh, described in an article in uh, the Laryngoscope Investigative Otolaryngology. Uh, So that techniques, you know, been described actually, uh, Ryan Pusha, one of my uh, residents helped write that up. And I think it's uh, uh, widely available, but people can read about uh, the specifics of that technique in, in that article. We really find that it's a way to actually close the lateral walls without having much tension. And I think that's the trick to avoiding stenosis is avoiding excessive excision of mucosa and avoid overshortening of the palate. I think if you shorten the palate too much, you're also taking a risk of stenosis. Uh, so I try to avoid uh, really removing any tissue really proximal to what we historically described as the dimple point. So that was always the the point in the soft palate, uh, which was described during the initial UPVP operation, you should basically take the uvula uh, during surgery, and you would actually pull the uvula anteriorly into the oral cavity, and that would create a crease of the soft palate, and that's what we refer to as the dimple point, and you really try to avoid much excision of the palate uh, proximal to the dimple point, and if you avoid that, that's going to lessen your degree of stenosis.
0: Any other comments about these fringoplasties in terms of just procedural elements to consider?
1: One of the real challenges is the type of suture and suturing to actually get it to kind of stay where you, you want it to be. Um, and that's really been the challenge. Uh, for me, the challenge is, is the palatophringous muscle is a tissue that actually does not have a lot of connective tissue. Uh, so although I, I, I describe sometimes in, in different courses and things as describing trying to suture jello, it's actually probably a little firmer than Jello, but sometimes not much. Uh, so it's a it's a pretty friable muscle, and so instead of trying to suture pieces of the muscle now, I actually try to sling around the muscle, and I say take a my uh, I usually use a 2-0 Vicryl, uh, but I try to go around the muscle, and I try to also use multiple sutures. So I don't try to just use one suture or two. I might try to get three or even four sutures around the muscle to kind of support it. So each suture is kind of distributing that tension uh, a little more efficiently. Uh, the second thing is on on knot tying. So historically for a vicral suture, you know, you might use, you know, four or five throws to actually tie the knot. But in the oral cavity, you're dealing with a couple of factors that, you know, make those knots as somewhat tenuous. And that's you're both swallowing so it's under constant movement. And it's also being constantly lubricated by saliva. And so for years, we struggled with those knots coming loose. And one of my colleagues uh, who does a lot of head and neck surgery and sutures in the mouth a lot suggested that we actually put more knots in our throws. And so now I I actually throw up to seven throws when I do my vicral sutures and actually find that that actually, it really does hold a lot better. So I actually throw more knots than you traditionally would. And I think that is uh, beneficial. Uh, The other alternative is to actually, include the kind of the Italian technique of using a barb suture. They've now actually described the barb suture pharyngoplasty. Uh, and and some people will argue that, that that the barb suture you know does a a nice job of distributing the tension and actually supporting you know the relocation of these muscles a little more effectively than using uh, isolated uh, traditional sutures. Uh, I think the jury's still out on that. I think that's uh still an open investigational question. But it's certainly something to consider is to, uh, you know, be sure and get good, solid muscular throws of your of your sutures. Uh, be sure and incorporate the tendon, in this case, the pterogomendibur raffe, or the the tendon around the hamulus. And then also to to be sure and uh, really incorporate a good bulk of the muscle that you're trying to suture, either with regular sutures or barb suture.
0: And you previously quoted some of those statistics surrounding the Friedman staging system and and efficacy of UPPP, the classic UPPP for those patients. With the modern techniques that you're just describing, how are you counseling patients on efficacy and and improvement in their symptoms, but also their um, PSG findings?
1: I think our success rate on symptoms has always been better than it's been on objective outcomes. And so if you're dealing with a patient with mild sleep apnea, where symptoms and quality of life are really the driver of your treatment, I think you can actually use some of the the higher success rates. Let's say seventy to eighty percent, because that's your your clinical success. PSG really doesn't matter too much, and that's why even in the Academy of Sleep Medicine uh, recommendations of 2010, uh, they actually recommended palatal only in people with mild sleep apnea, because they felt that the the objective outcomes were too variable in more moderate or severe apnea, but in mild apnea, where symptoms are really the driving force, you you know, it's a reasonable thing to consider if other therapies had failed. So I think in mild apnea, that's the numbers you can use is more the clinical outcomes. When you're looking at uh, severe sleep apnea, I think the the tables obviously change quite a bit. And so I tend to be more conservative when I'm looking at isolated palatal surgeries certainly i think the newer techniques are better than uh, what's described in the Friedman classification system i i would err on the side of being conservative and so i'll give people more still the, the 50% you know uh likelihood of really psg success now as far as improvement that's a different story and so a lot of times i'll rephrase this instead of curing the patient i'll refer to things more as really a, a reduction in disease burden because most of the people i'm operating on they failed CPAP. They may have failed other uh, medical devices as well, and so a lot of the surgery I'm looking at is really more salvage surgery instead of really curative surgery. So if I can get somebody that has severe sleep apnea and reduce their disease burden from severe to even you know to a moderate range, well that's a clinically meaningful improvement. If I can get them down to a mild range, then that's a marked clinical improvement. Well, if I get them down to a in a sense a an objective PSG You know, we'll say cure sort of level. I mean, that's that's like hitting you know a home run in the World Series or something. I mean, that's great, but that's really not my goal. Is my goal is first disease burden reduction, get people uh, down to a level of disease uh, burden that's actually much more manageable by using other combined techniques. Uh, But that's really my goal. So I give people for with severe disease. I'll actually usually describe more of a 40 to 50 percent kind of uh, likelihood of getting them into a, a mild sleep apnea range and a, a little bit higher success rate on a clinically significant disease burden reduction. Uh, but there's really not a lot of objective data on that. But I think it's probably a little bit better on 50% on the disease burden reduction and a little bit less than that probably for the objective outcomes.
0: What are your thoughts on the shelf life of the procedure itself in terms of, you know, the stiffening, for example, of the lateral pharyngeal walls or? The laxity obviously comes back somewhat over time, I presume.
1: Really good point. I mean, that's really an excellent point. And there clearly is relapse. Uh, the numbers, we don't have great data. There's some European data on UPVP that, you know, indicates that probably a third of patients have kind of a sustained long-term benefit. Uh, probably, a, in my thought, probably a third of patients that initially do well uh, relapse over a course of, of. Three to five years although probably not to the degree that they were initially and then uh another third have some partial relapse that it's still uh disease is still reasonably managed but it's clearly not you know at a level that 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 it was at baseline right after surgery uh a lot of that deals i think with i mean some of it as you mentioned is it's kind of aging effects probably uh some of it though is also weight related And I think you really have to counsel patients that surgery is not by itself a cure of sleep apnea. It's just part of the treatment paradigm that that these patients need, and that uh, weight loss and other therapies need to be an integral part of this, that if people gain weight uh, after having most ENT soft tissue surgeries, they will likely have some relapse, if not significant relapse, of sleep apnea.
0: How do you counsel patients on postoperative pain, too? Because so obviously it can be quite significant in these cases.
1: Yeah, it's probably, I'd say it's it's one of the uh, the biggest uh, morbidities of the procedures, the post-operative pain. You know, years ago, I used to describe on a scale of 10, I'd say to my patients, on a scale of 1 to 10, this is going to be a 10. And then people would come back and, and they'd say, Dr. Woodson, it was worse than you told me. And so I had to kind of change my scale. So on a scale of 1 to 10, I would tell them, you know well would be greater than ten um, and but I think with the the newer techniques and some of our multimodality pain management that the pain is still is still less, but it's still quite significant you know it's the thing that even to this date and I've had a lot of experience doing this, it's really variable I mean you do have some patients uh, that that seem to, to handle the pain well, and you seem to do the same operation in the same patient and and the second patient sits there and really struggles uh postoperatively. So I tend to err on the side of, of giving patients kind of the worst case scenario. You know, I tell them it's it's, you know, uh for the five to, to ten days after surgery, you know, it's obviously going to be the worst sore throat of their life. Um but we're gonna stand with them and help manage the pain through multimodality pain management, combination of usually narcotics, topical anesthetic agents, uh non anti inflammatories. But also then steroidal anti-inflammatories, and we can talk about that more in just in a few minutes if you want to. My pain uh, management algorithm, which I think is really important. But really, yeah, informing and educating the patient on the, on the pain is really critical because uh, they're going to have a a pretty bad sore throat uh, for probably 10 to 10 to 14 days after surgery. And I think it's only you know right to to, to educate them on that and give them. Uh, adequate expectations. Uh, unfortunately, I think we, we probably could as especially do a better job of actually preparing patients for that pain. Right now, we basically just deal with it postoperatively, operatively uh, but we're certainly starting to explore options of maybe getting patients in... Uh, doing some uh, swallow therapy or speech therapy even before the procedure to kind of help prepare them for the pain postoperatively. I think that would probably be beneficial. It's not something we officially do right now, but I think something, boy, I'd certainly recommend people to consider in the future.
0: And yeah, you mentioned the postoperative pain medications or the p- pain regimen. What are you typically using for these patients?
1: Yeah, pain medicine is its really a critical part of the whole procedure. It's really an a fundamental part of managing these patients, so I have a, a several part multimodality pain regimen that I use of both narcotic and non-narcotic medications. So I generally use oxycodone. Uh, I feel it's uh, the most reproducible medicine out there. Uh, you can use others, uh, but what I know when I give them oxycodone, they do well in the observation unit. That I know they're going to do well outside the observation unit with it as well. Uh, the second part is the non-narcotic pain medications, and I divide that into the uh, oral analgesics, and then the topical medications. Uh, don't forget uh, acetaminophen. That's a really important part of that. And I usually do it scheduled. So I'll do a thousand milligrams uh, three times a day. And also then combine that with the three times a day non anti-inflammatory. I usually use ibuprofen. Uh, so I do 600 milligrams uh, three times a day. Uh, some people are concerned about bleeding. I do think that it probably increases the amount of bleeding if bleeding occurs. I'm not sure that it increases the frequency of bleeding. I do know that it has a tremendous effect on some of the musculoskeletal pain that's associated with uh, palatal pharyngeoplasty, so it's a really useful medication. If you're concerned about bleeding, one thing I will do is I'll have the patient stop the uh, ibuprofen at five or six days postoperatively since a lot of secondary hemorrhage occurs at seven to 10 days, you're kind of outside that that window for some of the secondary uh, bleeding at that point. Then I think the other part of the non-steroidal pain medication that's important is uh, the use of topical agents. And I have a magic mouthwash that I use that's actually a combination of three parts lidocaine, uh, three parts a liquid antacid, and one part liquid Benadryl. So obviously the lidocaine, it's either two or 4%, whichever you have available, I think is fine. Um, that actually has, obviously has some, uh, has anesthetic properties to it. Uh, but the, uh, liquid antacid, which I thought initially was uh, just a coating agent that would help things adhere to the wound, probably has some degree of, uh, topical anesthetic effect itself. And actually liquid Benadryl similarly has a topical anesthetic agent. I think all three of them work in slightly different ways. So I think they have a synergistic effect, all three of them together than just one alone what I have the patients do is swish and spit those. So they're actually not swallowing it. So you can actually have them use it. I have them use it every hour, just swish and spit. And many patients say that it's actually as beneficial, even more beneficial than the narcotic. And then the final part of my uh, pain protocol is the use of uh, 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 oral steroids. So a lot of the pain after both tonsillectomy and after pharyngoplasty is this hyperinflammatory pain that occurs in the pharynx, and these people get these hugely contaminated wounds, and they develop this marked hyperinflammation that creates a lot of the pain that we see postoperatively. And by giving steroids, it really reduces this a lot. Oral steroids have been shown in other areas of surgery to have a hugely beneficial effect in. Uh, improving wound healing and reducing pain uh, by reducing this hyperinflammation.
0: Okay, and last question for you here. When you think about post-operative um, follow-up and post-operative sleep studies, when do you perform in those typically?
1: Generally at least two months, uh, anywhere from two to six months. Uh, one of the defining factors we have to look at is weight gain. So patients will frequently lose a little bit of weight uh, around the time of pharyngoplasty. And you want that weight to stabilize to get an accurate sleep study uh, recording. And so traditionally, it's been at least two months, but some people will even wait six months to get the sleep study. Uh, It somewhat depends for me on my clinical impression of how well the patient's doing. If I think the patient's doing really well, I might actually extend it a little bit longer. Whereas if the patient is clinically still having pretty significant apnea, I'll get a sleep study possibly sooner because I know they're going to need an additional stage of treatment.
0: And anything else before we close up that you didn't mention that you think might be worth adding?
1: Uh, earlier, you, d- you did ask about uh, imaging studies. And although I traditionally don't get imaging studies for the average sleep apnea patients, there's one exception to that. And that's the patient in which I do endoscopy and I see an abnormal pulsation of the lateral pharyngeal wall. And there certainly are, not about 5% of patients, aberrant carotid arteries. And in some patients, that can be pretty extreme. And so I always want to identify those patients because it certainly would affect uh, the nature of surgical intervention that I'm going to offer the patient. And I will get a CT scan with contrast to identify that aberrant carotid artery. And quite honestly, if it's present, uh, then I'd actually recommend that patient get some other type of surgery, uh, such as maxillofacial surgery, uh, cranial nerve implant, or something else.
0: All right. Well, that will wrap things up for today's episode. Um, I'll just provide a quick summary. So palate surgery really has been fundamental in characterizing the field of sleep surgery over the last several decades. Started with the Fujita UPPP back in the early uh, 1980s, which included tonsillectomy, a removal of redundant lateral pharyngeal wall mucosa, um, as well as the palatal mucosa, and then partial removal of the uvula and primary closure of the anterior and posterior tonsillar pillars. From the very beginning, all palate surgery works at trying to address the structural small airway that's most often in adults at the velopharynx, the level of velopharynx. However, also just keep in mind that it's not just about airway size, that these patients often also concomitantly display loss of upper airway muscle tonicity uh, during sleep that exacerbates their upper airway collapse and um, overarchingly Palate surgery attempts to alter these characteristics by affecting the airway size, the contour, shape, and and really the compliance of the muscles that make up the soft palate. The surgery itself can involve a number of different things, um, but ultimately the desired end state is to change the resistance um, and airflow in the upper airway. Mm -hmm. So I'll just ask a, a couple of questions and then we'll wrap up for today. First question is, what muscle constitutes the key defining element of the palate and lateral pharyngeal wall in the context of palate surgery for OSA? So answer here is the palatal pharyngeus muscle. It's a muscle that Dr. Woodson mentioned in several parts. It really is key, in when we think about the modern procedures of, of palatal um manipulating that muscle is really key to achieving the desired surgical end state. That'll be the topic of the next two questions. Next question, though, is what are the components of the traditional Fujita P? So this original procedure included the tonsillectomy, removal of redundant lateral wall and palatal mucosa, and then partial removal of the uvula, and then they primarily close the anterior and tonsillar pillars. Um, main complication that would happen is, like Dr. Woodson mentioned, when you remove out that mucosa, you get scarring as the tissue heals, and that would sometimes lead to a significant oropharyngeal stenosis, and um, that procedure has fallen largely out of favor, um, which leads into the third and final question, One of the most common procedures performed today is expansion sphincter palatophryngoplasty or variants of that procedure. What anatomical change is happening when you do that procedure? So the answer here is the palatopharyngeus muscle. I mean, this muscle is pedicled around the pterygoid hamulus and we talked a lot about different sutures and whatnot to tack that muscle down. It can be somewhat difficult sometimes, but ultimately the goal here is to kind of bring that muscle anteriorly, superiorly, and laterally And this results in the enlargement of the lateral pharyngeal airway, as well as advancing and superiorly positioning the margin of the soft palate. Functionally speaking, if you think about pediatric uh, velopharyngeal insufficiency, it's achieving the opposite effect of that. Well, that'll wrap things up for today's episode. Uh, We appreciate your time and tuning in, and we'll catch you next time.